0: We're going to get started. If you're keeping track as we break through each part of the armor of God, as we've gone through this series, we are on to the helmet of salvation. And I'll tell you, and you need to thank me for this, is, is every week as I prepare, the first thing I do is I write out a whole list of notes. And then I narrow that down, hit the highlights, things like that, because I could keep you here all day. And uh, when I got done with this one, I had 27 pages of notes on the helmet of salvation and I didn't want to do that to you because we'd be here till next Sunday Um, so I got it narrowed down immensely Um, so you're welcome but open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll start in verse 10 this is what we read every single week continue to read until we're done with this series it says, "Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth." having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So here we are in the midst of all of this, and... We've gone through this armor of God, and the one thing that you need to notice is that, as a whole, there are three offensive weapons, there are three different defensive weapons, and then, of course, there's one that's kind of neutral. And, in fact, it's almost unnoticeable, but the defensive weapons would be the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the one we're going to talk about today, the helmet of salvation. The offensive ones would be the shoes that we talked about the sword of the Spirit, and of course, and it's not specifically spoken in here, but the, the lance that would go with that, because these soldiers would wear this lance on their back, um, which would be just a big spear, and we'll talk about that later. And then, of course, the neutral one would be the loin belt. And we've talked about from the beginning of how crucial that loin belt is, and that the loin belt itself is the Word of God, and how everything that we have when it comes to this armor, and truth be told, everything we should have from where we come from in life as a believer in Christ, is attached to truth, this loin belt of truth, to the word of God. We should have no belief, no worldview that is contrary to anything that is in the word of God. It goes, it should intertwine with every aspect of our life, to the jobs that we take. I mean I want you to think about that for a minute, but and, and most of this is common sense, but sometimes it's not. Would we as a believer enter into any kind of a job in which it would cause us to do things that are contrary to what we believe in? Most of us would say no. I would like to think that all of us would say no, but it's hard to get anybody to agree on everything, so here we are. We wouldn't put ourselves in that situation. Our political views should stem from the foundation of that this is what God says about X, whatever that X happens to be and so it should affect the way that we would vote, or the way that we think. The problem is is that the worldview that we hold to typically has more to do with the way that we were brought up and the areas that we grew up in. If you've ever met anybody that's come off of an Indian reservation, they have a different mindset than somebody that grew up in white, rural America. Why? Because they have two different standards of which they process everything through, because they were brought up differently. Somebody who grew up very poor, has a different worldview than somebody who grew up very rich. Because here, you have to work for everything. Nothing's ever given to you. But if there's somebody, the golden spoon, if you will, if you've ever heard that analogy, is that every, you're entitled to everything. And so it affects the way that we do things. And so this, this loin belt, this, this neutral position that really doesn't take an offensive or defensive side, is crucial understanding that everything lines into it. it. It hooks into it. It attaches into it. And this thing really holds everything up. And then you look at the defensive and offensive weapons. And while they are defensive and offensive, they also intertwine inside of that. Because they do go on both sides. But as I said, we're going to look at verse 17. And it says, and take the helmet of salvation. And so I've got a couple of pictures here to take a look at. of What these helmets kind of look like. Again, some of this, these obviously were not, you know, the literal ones that they were found back then. Um, but they give you a good idea, a good indication of what these look at like so the helmet itself was very flamboyant okay it stood out it was ornate it was intricate it had a lot of carvings in it and a lot of times it would look more like artwork than it would just what you would think of as something that was a piece of armor Just kind of like some of the other stuff that we talked about. I mean, every one of these things were custom made to the individual, just like all the other pieces of armor. So sometimes these things would have these landscapes carved into them or these farm scenes carved into them. And frequently, and I couldn't find a good picture of this, but the entire helmet would look like the head of an elephant or the head of a horse or something uh, that would make it stand out. Some other very fierce, strong animal for no other reason than it's just decoration. There wasn't really a purpose that I could find in this. And on these, especially the the decorative ones, they would have these huge plumes and you can see that up there. And that plume was usually made out of feathers. They would color them, colored feathers or some sort of a horsehair and it would stand straight up out of the top. And the whole point of this was to draw attention to it. That's all it was for. Now, a lot of times they would have, you know, sometimes two different helmets. Um, They'd have one that would be used in part of a public ceremony or parade. We talked about other pieces that were like this. And if that was the case, this plume would be very, very long. It was almost like the longer the plume, the better you were. It was a, a rite of passage, if you will, or something like that. And it would actually hang down about the middle of their back. It'd be very long. And they would use these in these parades and things like that. Um, the tr- helmet that you see a lot of times in battle, sometimes it would have the plume. Other times you can see this one here on our, would be your left, um, or your right, excuse me, doesn't have anything on it. And that was what you would see a lot of times because you don't, when you're in battle, you don't necessarily want to draw a lot of attention to yourself, right? Like, hey, I'm over here. Everybody else has ducked down. You got this giant red thing sticking out. I wonder where he's at. So. These helmets were made of bronze, and they were equipped with pieces that were specifically designed to protect the jaws and the cheeks. And you can kind of see that there. And these things were sturdy. And they were very heavy. We have no idea how heavy these things were to wear. Um, They were so heavy that they would put some sort of a spongy material in the interior of this helmet to kind of soften it on the soldier's head to make it more comfortable, but they were incredibly strong. Nothing could really pierce this thing. I mean, it would take a lot to get through it, and not even this battle axe. And if you've seen that, this double-edged axe that they would hold in their hands, which were incredibly sharp and incredibly strong. But one thing about this helmet is that you don't walk down the street with it on without it, people taking notice to it. Right It sticks out. You see this plume pointing up in the air, or whatever the case may be, all the designs, all the intricacies of it, it sticks out. And I think it's interesting of why the Holy Spirit would compare a piece of weaponry like this to salvation. Because honestly, on the surface level, that doesn't make any sense until you really start to think about what is salvation. What does Ephesians 2,8 and nine tell us? It's a gift. Of God. In fact, salvation is the most elaborate gift that God has ever given us. And when someone is truly walking in a knowledge of their salvation and who they are because of it, that sticks out. And I think it's interesting how Paul used these words here. Because Paul likened salvation to this flamboyant helmet that everyone who saw it would notice. It would stick out to them. These plumes serve no other purpose except to get noticed. And Paul is telling us that any person who is confident in their salvation, and when he or she is walking in this powerful reality of all that salvation means for them, that this person is incredibly noticeable. And so let's look at some of these Greek words, and I broke some of these down for you, and we'll do this each week because it gives you some different ideas. But the helmet comes from this word, and I'm going to butcher this, and I'm probably going to butcher most of them today, they just keep getting longer. Paracophilea, or philea, I think I've got it on screen. Do I have that on screen? I don't, I'm sorry. Let me spell that for you. P E R I K E P H A L A I A. I'll spell that again. P E R K E P H A L A I A. Okay, so yeah, y'all try to pronounce that at home and tell me how good you do. But it's, it's, it's a compounding of two words here. It's peri, which just means around, and then the last one that I can't say is the head. Gee, who would have thought of that? Around the head, the helmet. It's, it's a piece of armor that fits very tightly around the head. Right? Makes sense. Don't have to go too deep. That's probably why I didn't put it on screen, because I don't remember when I did this. But this but, uh, just doesn't take a lot of common sense to put that, those pieces together. But why did a soldier need this helmet? What was crucial about it? Now, obviously, on a surface level, we understand anything coming at your head, boy, it'd be nice to have a helmet. But often what would happen is these opponents that they would face would carry this battle axe that we mentioned before. It was this short-handled thing, and it had two sides on it, it was, it was heavy, it was strong, and it was sharp, and it had one purpose, and it wasn't for looks. It was to cut people's heads off. That's what it was for. It was a crucial piece of armor that they had this helmet. And truthfully, it's no different than what we have. Why we have it. Why Paul put this in here the way he did. To face the adversary without your helmet uh, would be the equivalent of spiritual suicide. Why wouldn't we put this on? So, again, I've asked you this week in, week out. Where's the battlefield? What have we seen from the time that we were talking about the spiritual warfare and the point where we are gotten now with the armor of God? Where is the battlefield when we're dealing with this? It is the mind, right? We've shown that time and time again. If you look at all of this stuff that throughout Scripture is pointing back to the mind, the devil comes to attack your mind. Why does he do that? Because your mind is the control center of your life. Whether it should be or not is up for debate. Because we do have the Holy Spirit, and we have a a renewed spirit. And this mind shouldn't be what's controlling us in the aspect that it should be renewed to what God wants, if you're following what I'm saying. The enemy knows that if he can seize control of your thought life, then he can begin to extend his influence into other areas of your life. And Paul's choice of words here tell us, We've got to learn about this salvation, what it is, and what all that it includes. Because salvation, in and of itself, basic is we were not right with God, now we are right with God. But what does that entail? What does God say about salvation? We need to understand these things, and we have to spend time as individuals digging into what salvation is, because the American church has watered down what salvation is through through uh denominations and through bad teaching and the whole seeker sensitive movement oh you don't have to repent we don't ever talk about the blood of jesus and we don't talk about repentance and the things that you need to do you just got to be good and love jesus that's all you got to do no there's more to it that what does the salvation include? we have got to spend time studying what the bible has to say about healing we got to know it we got to understand it and we've got to accept it as truth because the word of god says it What the Bible says about deliverance, of being set free, no longer captive to sin. And what the Bible has to say about our redemptions and its beneficial consequences in our lives. We are redeemed. And we're redeemed out of no part that we had to play with it. It was a gift of God given to us when we receive it. Again, these are all very powerful truths that we have to understand and be able to give a defense, if you will, to why we believe these things. And the reason that we have to be able to give a defense is not because if somebody else comes and questions us about it, because things will happen in life that seem to go contrary to the word of God. And if we can't even play out a defense in our own mind, then we'll begin to dwell on thoughts that don't come from God. It'll begin to turn us away from them. When we have a full assurance of what God says on any of these matters, the enemy's attacks become futile. They're worthless. It doesn't matter. Whatever you say doesn't matter. It's what we believe that God says is true. So in Ephesians 6.11, we see this at the very beginning. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And we've gone through some of this stuff, but... Let me break this down again. The first thing we need to understand is this put on, came from the Greek word "enyo," and this is somewhat of of a uh, recap here, but it means to put on the entire thing, but when it says whole armor of God gives us something that we should know, a truth in this, that God has equipped us with everything that we need to stand against the enemy, but whose job is it to put it on? It's our job. Paul says put it on, which implies that we can take it off or we can ignore it. One of the two. It means maybe we had it on, but we take it off. But he says put on not just parts, not the parts you like. He says put on the whole armor of God, which requires some discipline in the believer's lives. This doesn't just happen. You're not going to wake up one morning like, "Ooh, I feel the armor today. No, we have to be diligent about doing this. He provides it for us. God provides it for us, but we choose whether we want to use it or not. And by making no choice, we've made a choice. But let's look at some of these words here again. The word wiles comes from the Greek word methodos, which is where we get our word methods. It's broken down into two words. The first one is meta, which means with. Odos, which means a road, It's where we get our, our word for odometer. and literally means with a road. Now, the methods of which the enemy uses, right? We talked about this before, but let's just recap this again. What is he trying to do? He uses these methods. They're always the same, and what this is implying, what Paul is telling us, is that he has a road that he takes, and it's always the same. There's no creativity in it. There's no variety to it. He uses one road. He uses one avenue attack. He always attacks believers in the same way. It's the same way every time. It's up here. This road of where it's going, where do you suppose the devil's road goes? It goes right to our mind. Because if he can control this, then he can control the rest of it. He can control the way you speak. He can control the way that you act. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 says, "...lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." What is a device? Device comes from the Greek word nomada which is the root word for naus, N-O-U-S. and It's the word for mind. This is implying the scheming of a mind, that we are not ignorant of the mind games that the devil tries to pull on us. So where's this road headed? It's the mind. Where's the battlefield? In the mind. You guys see, again, I'm showing you every week how these things connect, one to another. We see the word deception used in different places. It comes from the Greek word dolios, D-O-L-I-O-S. I think I would have it up on, on the screen. And this does not mean that this is deception that happened accidentally or deception that happens haphazardly like, oh, I deceived him. Way to go. I didn't mean to. This word is used throughout New Testament times in different verses that are connected with the devil's deceptive abilities. It's it's all over the place. And so dolios actually means when you break this down to bait someone, as in you would be baiting a fish, right? You ever go fishing, you don't throw out a bare hook you won't catch anything. I've seen one person do it. When I was a kid, I was fishing and I hooked into something as I was sitting there and it pulled my pole in the water. And I was probably 10 years old and some nice gentleman sees it happen. And he goes over there. He's trying to hook my pole for me and get it back and catches a baby bass on a bare hook. Never seen it before. Never seen it again. But the smart money is you bait the hook. You do something to draw people or draw these animals in, draw these things in, to make them come to where you are. The enemy takes a road to a person's mind. And if he can beat down the person's resistance, he'll begin to wage warfare with some sort of device in that person's mind. He's setting bait in front of them with these lies and accusations, hoping that the person will bite it. He's laying these things out. If he can get you to begin to doubt God's word, that's the, that's the number one thing that he does. You saw it in the example of when he tempted Jesus. He tried to get Jesus to doubt the very word of God by misinterpreting or misusing it. And Jesus immediately was like, nope, that's incorrect. And here's why. How did Jesus do that? Because he knew the word. Had he not, it may have been a different story. It's the same with us. We have to know what God says about the things that God says. But we don't. We have a bunch of catchphrases. If I see on Facebook one more time, somebody say something like this. I know God in the Bible that God said he'll never give me more than I can handle, but blah, blah, blah. That's not in the Bible. Okay. Let's make that very clear. Now, if you thought it was, I apologize. I hope I didn't step on your toes too hard. It's not in the Bible it's just, it's some sort of like cultural thing like oh god never gives you more than you can handle i wish he didn't trust me so much that's not what it says he said he'll never lead you into tempt- or he'll never allow you to be tempted past what you can uh, abstain from where we to get this other thing is beyond me because it's the american way we just love God and God, God, I know you'd never allow me to put, put things on me that I couldn't handle. Well, guess what? We live in a dirty world where things come and attack us. And if we're truly walking in this righteous and ha- righteousness and have the helmet of salvation on, we can handle anything. Because there's nothing greater than the knowledge of who God is and that our God is bigger than any problems. Sorry I got off on that tangent, pet peeve, just thought of it. Here we go. Let's go on to the next part. Looking at what a stronghold is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 starting at verse 4 I'm going to try to slow down I know I'm talking fast 2 Corinthians chapter 10 starting at verse 4 for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for what pulling down strongholds. It should be familiar, we spent three months reading this passage every week. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So here we're going to go look at some of the Greek words in this passage. I gave you a, an understanding of that in the last series, but now we're going to break it down even deeper. The word stronghold comes from the Greek word akuroma. O-C-H-U-R-O-M-A. It's one of the oldest words in the New Testament, and it was originally used to describe a fortress. We all know what a fortress is, right? Okay. But by the the New Testament times, this word, the same word was used also to depict a prison. So it was the same word used for two different things, a uh, fortress and a prison. So when we put this in context, that for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of fortresses or for the pulling down of prisons. So a stronghold is like a fortress in that it's this fortified place, okay, this, this area that's, that's got these thick walls. They, they, they were built up kind of like a castle or, or a, a, a citadel or a fort of some sort where they were these huge, thick walls. They were impregnable walls. And what were they used for? They were keeping outsiders from breaking in. They build these walls very, very high. For one purpose. Keep outsiders out. We don't want you in. But later this word also began to get translated to mean prison. So what does a prison do? Well, it does the opposite of a fortress. Where a fortress keeps outsiders out, a prison keeps insiders in. See how that works? You guys, you're like, man, I'm glad I came to church today. I didn't know that. No, that's exactly what it is. It keeps the insiders from getting out. The fortress keeps the outsiders from getting in. The fact that this word stronghold can be translated as both fortress and prison tells us something very important about it. Because think about this. First of all, This emphatically means that when a person has a mental or emotional stronghold in his life, he has these walls around him that are so thick, that are so high, that it just seems like others cannot break through this barrier to help him out. What's he doing? He's keeping outsiders out. They become isolated in their mind, which will lead to isolation from other people altogether. And and, and I think many of us have probably seen this in somebody at one time or another. These things do not happen overnight. They're built block by block, block, piece by piece, put together. It's a very long time of allowing the enemy's lies to build this fortress around a person's mind. But think about people that you've run into in the past. I've done a lot of counseling, and so I see this stuff. And a lot of times, as I'm sitting there, I'm going and I'm picking out pieces like, I see this verse here, I see this verse here, I see what's happening here, and so that's how we try to help people. But they they just keep everybody out. It's, It's almost like you've tried to talk sense into them, and yet they just ain't getting it. It's just not making any sense to them. They don't want to receive it. Why? Because they have this fortress up that's keeping you out. Secondly, these same walls that are keeping others from getting in also help or keep these people from getting out. They are trapped in these thoughts that they have, these lies that they believe. A lot of times these people become paranoid and tend to see the worst in everything, every person, every situation. The bottom line is this, they become mentally and emotionally in bondage. There are really two types of strongholds when we break this down. Two types of strongholds that happen in people's life. Rational strongholds and irrational strongholds. Paul refers to rational strongholds when he's talking about casting down imaginations or maybe some verses say arguments in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We just, we just looked at that, but these rational strongholds. The word imaginations or arguments or whatever you want to say it comes from the Greek word logismos, which is where we get logic, which means logical thinking. Rational strongholds are exactly what they sound like. God's telling you to do something, but you can't because. God wants you to maybe be faithful to to giving to Him with your money, but you can't because what if I don't have enough to pay my bills? What if I don't have enough to make rent or pay the house payment or put food on the table? Or God's saying, I want you to go and do something. I can't do that. I'm not qualified. You see Moses arguing with God, I can't do this. You got the wrong guy. These are rational thoughts. Why? Because we do all have weaknesses in our lives. And we have areas in our lives where we're stronger in our faith of the things that God says than others. Some people can, would wipe out their checkbook in a heartbeat if they felt God told them to do it with no questions asked, no problem. Others of us would maybe give faithfully, but boy, that big check would be a tough one to write. Or the big commitment or the big stepping out there in faith. I mean, I've literally met people who have given away their vehicles and their homes because God told them to do that. And I want to make sure you understood that God told them to do that. This is no thus saith the Lord give away your house stuff, okay? I think we're all smart enough for that. But they would do it with no promise of anything other than God says, I will meet all your needs according to my riches and glory. And sure enough, he did. I've watched people that I've known that are true believers in God give away fortunes more than most of us would ever make in a lifetime with no doubt that God would take care of it. And he did every single time. But these are rational strongholds. People who struggle with this more often than not are what they would call themselves thankers. I happen to fall in this category. I overthink everything. Okay? Now, my faith is built to the the point that if God says to do it, I have no problem stepping out in faith saying, okay. I mean, when my wife and I moved to Hastings... The income that the church could afford to pay me was about 25% of what we were used to living on. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't know how we were going to do it. But I knew God said go. And I also knew that He said He'd take care of it. And He did. It didn't mean that we were living high on the hog. And it didn't mean that we were driving Bentleys. But we were getting by. And there was no explanation other than the provision of God. None whatsoever. We stepped out in faith. And you know what was funny? is while it, it, it was horrible experience, and the fact that it's like, I don't like not having money. It was not fun. It, it, it taught me something. It made my dependence on Him instead of on my abilities. And it showed me something that anywhere we go, for the rest of our lives, wherever God calls us to, He's the one that provides for us. It's not us. But these are the people, much like myself, they're that are naturally allow their minds to dominate and conquer their faith. So I overthink everything, and that's why I can speak to this so strongly. I have to understand the what, who, where, when, why, how, every situation. I won't make a decision until I have all the facts in front of me, and then I can process all the information, all the data, and then I will make a decision from there. And so, again, I fall into this camp. Now, thank God that I've grown through this process over several years. And now I have no problem stepping out in the faith that God says to do. But the bottom line is this. Your mind will fight against the Holy Spirit all day long. He'll fight against the control of who has control in your life. And we have a hard time letting that kind of stuff go. But there's the other stronghold, which is this irrational stronghold. And this is something that everyone has experienced at one time or another. And this primarily has to do with fears or worries of things that are really completely unrealistic. This is just a few examples. This may be a fear of of catching a disease. I have a family member. is what you would call a hypochondriac. Okay? You don't know what that word is? Look it up. But every time something goes through wherever they are, they catch it. Every time. When it was West Nile, they had it. They didn't have the symptoms, but they had it. Swine flu, oh, they got that too. This is a woman. I was waiting on her to tell me she had prostate cancer at one point. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, but she has this irrational fear of disease. Or, or maybe it's dying early. They're afraid to do anything because they're going to die early. Or an abnormal fear of rejection. We all don't like rejection, but these people will just do nothing because they're always afraid they're going to be rejected by somebody maybe it's a conversation that you have to have that you're not necessarily looking forward to and you're playing it out in your mind all the hundreds of different ways that you this thing is going to go and then when the conversation actually takes place it was nothing like you thought it would be these are these irrational fears in other words that we allow these things these strongholds to enter enter, enter our lives but they really don't have any basis for reality Now, a lot of times, these irrational ones will take care of themselves as the person begins to mature and they grow, um, especially as they mature in their faith. Sometimes, you don't even have to have faith. Just the simple use of rationale will throw these irrational things out. Just common sense. As an example, children typically have an irrational fear of the dark. Why? Because the boogeyman's going to get them, right? There's something in their closet. There's something under their bed. How can we overcome that? Turn the lights on. Nothing there, right? The rational will eventually outweigh the irrational, sometimes on its own. But that doesn't mean that these aren't real and that they don't have power over someone's lives. But the the bottom line is that they're just easier to overcome most of the time. But this is why Paul says that we have to take every thought captive for the obedience of Christ. So let's look at this passage again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that excels itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, look at this. We've read this a couple of times, we read this every week for several months. There's something that really should jump out at you about this passage because we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the armor of God and about doing battle, essentially, with the enemy, right? There should be something glaring that is missing in this passage, the way that we most of us have been taught spiritual warfare. Paul never once mentioned the devil. He never mentioned the adversary. He never mentions the enemy. The only thing he mentions is our thought life. That if you don't take your thoughts captive, that they will take you captive. Right, that's what Paul's saying. Bringing every thought into captivity. This whole setup here is this from this Greek word. I'm going to try to say it. Aichmalotidzo. I don't. A i c h m a l o t i d z o. This is a very brutal word that means to take one captive with a spear pointed in their back. So it's not a friendly word. But Paul is telling us that these thoughts won't be taken captive easily, but that we've got to be brutal with ourselves and forcibly seize control of our minds. This is what Paul is saying with this. If our minds and our emotions try to get away from us, then we must grab hold of them and force them into subjection. The word thought that was here is, is noma. It's the same meaning as the word devices from nomada that we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, but... But the bottom line is this. is Paul is talking about mind games. He's not talking about the enemy. The enemy may be waging war against our mind. But what he's saying is we have to control the battlefield. We have to be in control of it. So let's look at this passage again. Down in, at the bottom there at, at verse 5. It says, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, this word obedience means is hoop, hoopaka, ah, hoopako. okay, H-U-P-A-K-O-E, I'm sorry. Uh, these things are tough. This comes from two words, Hoopo, which means under, and akal, which means acoustics, which is where we get our word for sound. It's the picture of forcing someone into a subno- subordinate position and then making them listen to you, forcing them into subjection, making them listen. We're talking about the mind. We're forcing our mind into subjection to the things of God. That you're not going to control my life. The things of God are going to control my life. And these are all these things that as you break these down, that you have to see this battlefield. Why do I keep asking you every week, where is the battlefield? Because we have to understand this. That the battlefield, when we're doing battle with the enemy, we're not out there swinging the sword of the Spirit around and things like that. It is controlling this. So there are a couple of different things. We talked about stronghold, but the next thing we need to talk about is this oppression. is another thing that the enemy can use against it. So what is oppression? You see this in Acts 10 and verse 38. It says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The word oppression comes from another word I can't pronounce. I'm not even going to attempt, but you see it up there, right? Ah, uh, You can see why I'm not attempting. It comes from two words, kata, which is something that is dominating or manipulating, and dunamis, which is power that is explosive. We've seen that word dunamis a few times. Uh, it's basically, a force that comes to powerfully dominate and manipulate. Now, technically, when this word is used, it's portrayed as an image of some wicked tyrant or an evil king that is forcibly imposing his will upon the people that he's king over or he's, his subjects, basically. But what Paul is showing us here is that when a person is oppressed, his mind and emotions are manipulated and dominated by an outside source. When a stronghold in the mind remains unchallenged, it will eventually turn into a serious case of oppression. It's one after the other. Once this oppression sets in, the end result of this is flat-out hopelessness. They can never seem to break through. And I've counseled people with this, and it seems so like the answers are so simple. But yet there's something holding them back because this is a long process of this setting in. The only thing that can break through this is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that individual has to allow that to happen. And this whole thing, we're talking about the strongholds and the suppression and even the hopelessness that comes from those is where the helmet of salvation comes in. Salvation protects your mind. 1 Peter 1.13 I'm trying to land this plane, I promise. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So much in this, but, but here's what it's saying. is that when we see gird up the loins of your mind, it's saying gather up the loose ends of your mind and get it in line with the Word of God. The helmet of salvation gives you God-given attributes and benefits. It's deliverance from sin. It's salvation from hell. It's divine protection and preservation. It comes with healing and wholeness and complete soundness of mind. In other words, God has given us everything we need to stand against the enemy. Everything. Put on the whole armor. We have everything that we need. But what is a sound mind? It's easy to recite these things, but what is it? 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. You hear these quoted all the time, especially when it comes to spiritual warfare. But the spirit of fear here is not referring to a spirit like you and I would think. Okay, It's not like there's a literal spirit of fear, if you will. But this is more of an attitude. The walking in fear. All the time. Because in the same way, there's not a literal spirit of fear. There's not literally a spirit of power and a spirit of love and a spirit of sound mind. He's talking about the way that we think. We are not fearful, but we walk in power, we walk in love, and we walk with the sound mind. This word sound mind comes from this Greek word. Again, I'm not going to try to pronounce it S O P H R O N E O. The first one, it's a compound again, a lot of these are. The first one is sozo, which is saved and delivered. We've heard that one before. The last one is phronio, which means intelligent thinking. It basically says this, that we have a saved mind or we have a delivered mind. This is the picture of a mind that has been set free and is thinking correctly. When your mind is guarded and renewed by the Word, you begin to think like you should. In other words, it's perfectly rational to trust what God says about every situation. Perfectly rational. The world tells us it's perfectly irrational that we even show up on Sundays. But the truth is is that a saved mind, set free and delivered from the devices of the enemy, it means it's perfectly rational that I will trust God to do what He says He would do. I can put my hope in nothing less than Jesus Christ, His blood, His righteousness, the things that He's given me, I will believe in that. And this doesn't just happen. This is from someone who is diligent about studying and understanding the Word of God. Somebody can be saved for years, but still have an unrenewed mind and still be in bondage. It amazes me when I see somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 40 or 50 years, still struggling with this because they believe parts of the Word, but they've never accepted it all as truth. Romans 8.6 says this, "...for to be carnal carnally, ah, carnally minded is death." But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What does this tell us? We can be carnally minded, but we can also be spiritually minded. Which one do we want to choose? And it shows the difference between the two. Titus 1.15 To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now these verses are about someone who is an unbeliever, but yet they do fit the mindset of many believers that we have today. That they've never been disciplined enough to renew their mind with the Word of God. This whole renew your mind thing has almost become cliche. But it literally means that whenever a thought comes in, doesn't line up with what God has said or what God has promised. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. You see, the battlefield is in the mind. And the reason I'm taking you guys on this journey is we need to understand that. Because if we're going to be effective as the body of Christ to do the will and the work of the Lord, then we need to know where the enemy's advances are trying to come. Now we talk about strongholds and bondages that are over cities or that are over families or over different things. But if each believer would get their mind straight and believe wholeheartedly that what God said is true and nothing can shake that, imagine what would happen. You could do a lot with a few. People who are sold out for the things of God. People who take the promises of God for what they are. People who are not ashamed to lay hands on the sick and watch them recover. I mean, that's that's the thing. We're always afraid to pray for people who are sick because what if they don't get healed? The caveat of that is that well, I have prayed for people who have never, you know, they didn't receive their healing or whatever, and there could be a thousand explanations for that. I just know what the Bible says to do. But by stopping praying for people, I didn't get any more people healed. You see how it works? So by doing this, I've seen some fruit of it. And some of it very likely is my own faith. You know, it's a lot easier to, to pray for somebody else than it is to believe for myself. But to stop doing what God said doesn't produce more fruit. The battlefield's up here. The enemy is going to lie to you. He's going to take from you. He's going to tell you things that aren't true. He's going to try to point you in directions that will lead you astray. And there's a reason that we are the body of Christ. Because we all come together with one heart, one mind, one purpose. We're here to follow God together. I know I went a little long, but let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you more than anything that you've given us all that we need, that you've fully equipped us for everything that we need to do life and to do your will and to do your work and do the things that you have for us. The things that you've called us to do, the the things that you've asked of us, Father, that we have the ability to do it, and that nothing will really keep us from it, Lord. And I thank you that we have overcome the enemy because of the work that you've done, that your blood has made us righteous, that the gift that you've given us we have received freely, and we thank you for it. That we have the Holy Spirit, not just within us, leading us, but upon us, giving us the power that we need to walk in the things that you've called us to do. Lord, as we continue to study your word, I thank you that you bring out things to light to us that we need to know. That we leave each week different than we came, Lord, that we're never again the same. That we don't leave these doors just haphazardly, Lord, but that when we walk out, that we are entering the mission field. That we're entering into the place of darkness, Lord, and that we will be a light. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for all the people here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.